Hi, welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode 33 in the book of Hebrews titled Faith, Moses, Joshua, and Rahab, where we discuss Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 through 31. I'm Joel Harford, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, as we move through Hebrews chapter 11, we have seen profiles of the different men of faith, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. And now we come to Moses, who is a huge figure in the Old Testament. What do we learn here by what the author kind of highlights about his life? Well, this is a a powerful section uh, here. And some of the phrases that are connected with Moses are, are memorable and powerful especially where it says, as seeing him who is invisible. This is a key phrase for me of understanding faith as the eyesight of the soul, the ability to see an invisible Christ. And honestly, for the overwhelming majority of the redeemed that ever will have lived when all said and done, 99.99% of us will not have seen Jesus with our physical eyes. Uh, those that lived before Christ didn't, uh, a very, very few of those who lived while Christ lived. Even those that eventually came to faith in Christ through the word of the apostles never laid eyes on Jesus in the days of his flesh. And then obviously 20 centuries of church history, all of us have lived as seeing him who is invisible. As Peter says, though we have not seen him, we love him. And so Moses is a paradigm of that. He persevered, it says in this text, as seeing him who's invisible. We're going to see in this section also how the world will entice us or threaten us away from Christ and how much we must stand against either mechanism. Mm -hmm. The world may allure us to turn away from Christ or it may threaten us and we have to be courageous by faith. Yeah. Well, for the sake of our audience, I'm going to read Verses 23 through 31. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So the first question I want to ask you is in verse 23. It's very interesting to me. It says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. They were not afraid of the king's edict. So I want to start with a simple question is, is this talking about Moses' faith or his parents' faith? clearly, clearly not. Um, No, faith comes from hearing the word. So an infant can't have faith. An infant doesn't have faith. So once you understand the existence of an invisible God and his desires or requirements for our lives, then faith kicks in. Now, this is clearly talking about Moses' parents. And so they were bold and courageous, and they did not uh, give in to fear concerning Moses. And so because of their faith, Moses survived. He would have been slaughtered. Uh, And so really it's focusing on Moses' parents. What can we learn from Moses' parents uh, regarding 
when to disobey unjust laws in faith, looking to God who is invisible and is a higher law. Right. It's, it's they and also the, the Hebrew midwives are examples uh, from the Exodus account of, of lawful civil disobedience. Uh, when, when the laws of government compel you, force you to do something that violates God's word, that violates God's law, you mu- not only may, you must disobey. It's different if the law permits something that should have been forbidden. That's a different matter, like abortion, things like that. We're not required to do anything. It's just others have the freedom to do things they ought not to do, according to God's law. So that's different. But in the case of uh, you know the early church, which was being forced to burn a pinch of incense to Caesar and, and say words that they didn't believe, they, they disobeyed. Or even in the days of the apostles, when the Jewish authorities forbade them from preaching the gospel, Again, they had to disobey that. You know, as Peter said, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. Uh, And then the Hebrew uh, midwives and Moses' parents would be examples also of civil disobedience. They were commanded by Pharaoh to, to expose or kill the boy babies, and that is a clear violation of God's law. Yeah. Why do you think the author included this little phrase that they saw that the child was beautiful? Yeah, How does that play into this? Yeah, actually, right before we went on this podcast, I looked it up in Exodus 2, and they saw that he was a fine child. Like, Every mom and dad thinks their baby's the most beautiful baby in the world. I don't, I don't know how that even factors in. But it made it into the Exodus account, and it made it here in Hebrews. And I don't know, Joel, what do you think? I, I don't have a real good answer. He's a beautiful baby, so we'll save him. <laughs> I don't know. I just... My mind goes to the simple answer of just they, they value the blessing that God gave them. You know, the, the translation I read said that they were not afraid of the king's edict. Mm-hmm. One of the things you said is that they did not give in to fear. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder if that's more the idea that I'm sure they were afraid of Pharaoh. Yeah. This is the whole reason they're hiding Moses. But they chose to honor God and cherish the blessing he gave them rather than maybe save their lives. You yeah. know, and so in that I way, he it. was incredibly beautiful to them. It's a good answer. Uh, also, it could be, you know how it says in the book of Acts when they're about to stone Stephen or about to, uh, you know, to try him. And they looked on him and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And so it could be that there's just sometimes something that God does to say, stop, just look. Mm-hmm. This is a human being. This is a special moment. And it could be the parents just in some ways were able to see something that, that moved them. So we're not going to kill this baby. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. I'd love to find that out. Yeah, absolutely. We'll find out in heaven. Yeah, but I, I like what you said here in verse 23. It says, you know, they they were not afraid of the king's edict. They didn't give way to fear. And so often in the Bible, faith and fear are juxtaposed. They're opposites. You can either fear or you can have faith. Um, Jesus often said, do not be afraid, only believe. Those kinds of things. Or you little faith, why did you doubt when they were afraid during the storm? So fear and faith tend to be opposites. By that I mean uh, not fear of the Lord, that's a a good thing. But I mean uh, fear of circumstances, fear of what might happen, all of that. Fear, uh, a worldly or earthly fear of consequences that's frequently pitted against faith. Yeah. Now in verse 24 and verse 25, It says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So how did Moses come to this conclusion that he should reject his, I would assume, lofty title of 
you know, prince of Egypt, at least adopted prince in, in, uh, in Pharaoh's daughter's household. And he had all the trappings of riches and power. And he chooses to be mistreated with the Israelites. Mm. How do you think he came to this conclusion as you read the accounts? I don't really know. Something along the line must have captivated him. First of all, he must have, he must have learned and, and he would have learned because babies don't know anything. So he, he would have learned his actual ancestry. Don't know how or when. I don't know if, if uh, Pharaoh's daughter told him. I don't know if his own mother, as she was nursing him, and maybe she continued to have care over him as he was a toddler. There's just so many things we don't know. But you remember how Miriam, his older sister, had orchestrated that um, his own mother would nurse him. And so somewhere in there he found out what his heritage was. And he was captivated by it. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, it captivated. He became a believer in the true God. And as he looked at that, and then he looked at the, the as you said, the trappings of, of power and prosperity and pleasure, um, he was drawn in by faithfulness to God. He identified with slaves rather than the loftiest uh, uh, position that he, he had available. He, I don't think, ever would have been actually Pharaoh. Uh, there was somebody in line for that. But he, was, he would have been a member of the court, and he would have been uh, very comfortable in his life. Yeah, he could have lived a, a life of lavish blessing for the rest of his life, yeah. uh, for sure. Stephen gives us more in, information about this. It says he was trained in all the ways of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. So in other words, he was a prince of Egypt, uh, if you think of it that way. He was, he was well-trained, somewhat like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego brought up from, from being young in the Babylonian court under Nebuchadnezzar. So you have all, all the access to power. You've got the best foods. You, you know, you're treated very well. And he uh, perhaps went out and saw what was going on with the uh, Hebrew slaves, and he knew that he was a Hebrew and that, to some degree, really should have joined them in their suffering. And so God just did some work in his heart. Do you see any parallels here in, uh, with Moses um, leaving, leaving the, the kingly courts and going down to suffer his people uh, in the life of Jesus, where you mm -hmm. know, and he makes that journey in Philippians 2? Yeah. Hey, you know, a, a type and a shadow. It's a powerful idea. You know, honestly, Joel, I hadn't thought of that before, but that's good. How he identified with uh, people in the midst of their suffering, and he turned his back on all of the trappings of, of, of prosperity and ease. So it, it's a choice that he made. And so here's the thing. By faith, we make choices. I think that's, that, this is an energetic chapter. There's lots of human activity in this chapter. By faith, so-and-so did this. And so fundamentally, by faith, we understand certain things and then make choices that are uh, according to what we have come to understand. That's what we see in Moses. So speaking of this understanding, it says in verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Mm -hmm. Now, this is an astonishing statement for anyone who understands the timeline, right? Mm -hmm. Moses lives 1,400 years before the birth of Christ. And it says, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth yeah. than the church of Egypt. How did he consider this? That's a, well, that's a calculation in his mind. By faith, I think it's just so important for us to understand. Faith is the eyesight of the soul by which we see invisible spiritual realities, past, present, and future. Can we go back for a minute, uh, just, just for a moment, uh, to what he says in verse 25? Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than in, to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So by faith, he can see where this is all heading. Hmm. 
the, this, the fleeting pleasures of sin. And, and for me, this is a very teachable moment for all of us. Sin is very enticing. It's very alluring. The world is attractive, but the pleasures are fleeting. And then after that comes guilt and corruption. And so Moses, by faith, was able to see the dangers in the temptations. By the way, I think it's also important for us to understand the context of this entire chapter. The author to Hebrews is writing to Jewish people who had made a profession of faith in Christ, but who are being tempted to forsake that profession of faith in Christ and go back to Old Covenant Judaism. They're not really going back to Old Covenant Judaism. They're going to a comfortable life. That's what they, they want. The prosperity, the they want the prosperity, the business. They want yeah. the early, worldly things. And the author is being very shrewd here, saying Moses turned his back on all that. He would rather be identifying with the suffering people. So keep in mind what he had said in chapter 10. Remember those earlier days when you were first acquainted with the gospel? You chose to be mistreated with the people of God. Remember, you are willing to turn your back and uh, even on your property and, and your freedoms. And so he's using the same kind of language. Said that's just exactly the same thing Moses did. He turned his back on all the comfortable lifestyle and and chose to be identified with the suffering people of God. So that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing here. Be willing to be identified with the suffering people of God. Now, what you're talking about here is the vision of the future. All right, Christ hadn't even been born yet. He had faith in a Christ who would, who was to come. He could see him who is invisible. And you know what's amazing? All of those Old Testament saints, they're no different than us. They heard the word of God, what was said about the Christ. And whatever information they got, they believed it. And it was credited to them as righteousness. They saw an invisible Christ based on the word of God. We do the same thing. They looked ahead. We look back. What's the difference? We, have, we just have more information. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have the New Testament, all the doctrines. But all of it, all of it is the same thing. The Word of God tells us about Jesus, and we either believe or we don't. If we do believe, it's credited to us as righteousness. Now, in Moses' case, he's before it happened. But God had already made predictions. He had already given information that Christ is coming. And so he saw the future by faith. So applying this now, I think this is very relevant. Uh, how can we today consider the reproach of Christ. I think that reproach of Christ probably means um, reproach we receive because we're looking to Christ, right? Yeah, yeah. So how can we uh, make the same calculation and consider the reproach of Christ greater wealth than our current age? Well, first of all, it's hard for us in, in America. We don't get reproached mu much for Christ. Um, Christ is well known here in our country. There are a lot of Christians. Uh, Christianity has been part of the fabric of our nation from the beginning. And so the suffering that Christians go through for Christ here in this country is far less than our brothers and sisters in other places of the world, certainly North Korea or Nigeria or the Horn of Africa or other places that are aggressively persecuting Christians. Um, for them, these words would be life. They would, they would be sustaining and nourishing them because they are being pounded. Uh, they're being reproached. They're being arrested. They're being tortured, perhaps even killed. They've lost loved ones for the sake of Christ. And so to be able to stand up under that, you're only, only going to do it by faith. And so these words would be precious if we were in that kind of situation. For us, we need to say our battle is probably mostly in the, in the issue of personal holiness standing firm against the temptations of our age, and then a willingness to be bold for Christ and take whatever minor reproaches come from that, which is an, an, a sneer, an upturned look, uh, the fact you don't get a promotion at work, things like that. And to be willing to bear the reproach of Christ at that level 
and not embrace the fleeting pleasures of sin, but instead look ahead, as the text says, look ahead to the reward. So what do rewards play in the Christian life? You've thought about this once or twice, haven't you? Brother, you know I have. And and we have to just let's stay right within this chapter. It says um, in in verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please him because anyone who comes to him must believe Number one, that he exists. And number two, that he rewards those who diligently or earnestly or with all their hearts seek him. And so the reward ultimately must be just him. Uh, We seek him. He is our treasure. He is everything that we want. Christ, we want him. And so we are willing to give up anything that we might have him. And it's actually impossible to please him if we don't expect that we will get him. Um, so you must expect that we'll be that you'll be rewarded by an experience, an eternal experience with Christ in heaven. Now there are lesser rewards, and we could say, I also would like the reward of one who is persecuted for his faith. Jesus said that, blessed are you, when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. I think Jesus there meant extra awards that are given to those that suffered in significant ways that other people didn't. So Moses was one of those ones. He was willing to be identified with the Jews. And we know the story, how uh, he went out one day and he was just walking amongst the slaves and he, he uh, sees a, uh, an Egyptian taskmaster flogging one and he, looking this way and that, looking around, seeing that no one was watching, rose up and killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And so, honestly, um, he went, went the, the, uh, as far as he could go in identifying with, with his people. Now, I don't know that the Scripture condones what he did. Maybe it, it does. Maybe it's an act of war or something like that. I don't know. But he was afraid and at that point fled Egypt. But at any rate, he clearly identified with the suffering people of God. Now, for me, when it comes to looking ahead to the reward, first of all, verse 6 says, I must do it. It's not optional. I must consider that my future will be bright if I serve Christ. And there might be lesser rewards that come from specific actions of courage. Yeah. I think when you think of looking to the reward too, it's just assumed that you're doing that through trials. Yeah. Right? You know, you think of a sports team that was, you know, endured some trials to get this big trophy. It's like, it's just assumed that there was a struggle. So if you're looking to the heavenly reward, it's kind of just assumed that there's going to be a lot of trials along the way. Yeah, I, I just, it's amazing what's in my mind now. I love the Jim Elliott quote. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That, that just fits this context perfectly. He couldn't have kept all the treasures of Egypt. He would have lost them at death. Instead, he got the treasure of Christ, which he will have for all eternity. He was not a fool here to turn yeah. his back on that. Let's talk about the, the Exodus. In verse 27, he says, By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And you already mentioned that, the seeing him who is invisible on the faith. But also, the author does just skip over the entire Pharaoh versus Moses of the Exodus. But what do we learn here in verse 8 about um, how Moses led the people out of Egypt? Well, it's amazing. However long this chapter is, it's, it's a quick summary. I mean, what kind of faith did it take for Moses after the burning bush to go and confront Pharaoh and say, let my people go? That took tremendous courage and faith. So, and it's not even mentioned I think here. so, because he says, Lord, please send someone else. <laughs> I don't want to go. So, um, but yeah, I think this is really, it is pointing to the Exodus because he was afraid. 
of the king's anger uh, when he killed the Egyptian um, and he fled for his life. So this is talking about the other time that he left Egypt and that is the Exodus. And he's not afraid at all. You look, uh, uh, you know, uh, the right before the, the last plague, the 10th plague, remember how um, Pharaoh was enraged with Moses. He was very angry with him. And he said, you will never see my face again. And Moses said, that's right, I'm never going to see your face again. They, and he was angry too because of how shabbily and how, how badly uh, Pharaoh had dealt with them, double-crossing them again and again, changing, you know, going back on his word. Um, and so, but he had no fear of Pharaoh. And we need to extend that right to the Red Sea crossing. He had no fear of Pharaoh even when he showed up uh, with this vast army. And so he, he feared the Lord. He knew that God had infinite power, far greater than anything Pharaoh could muster. So he was not afraid of the king's anger. He persevered. He continued. He endured. Um, what, what do we mean by that? Well, he went through, let's say, all the ten plagues. He went through the experience, let's say, right before the Red Sea opened up. Um, he didn't crumble at that moment. So let's, let's make the pinnacle of Pharaoh's anger and Moses' lack of fear of Pharaoh's anger right before the Red Sea crossing. Because he never saw Pharaoh again after that. Pharaoh's done. So that's the, the most climactic moment. And Moses persevered. He continued on. He didn't go out and sue for peace. He's like, no, no, we're fine. And he called out and God said, you know, stretch your staff over the sea. And then the, the sea opened up. He endured as seeing him who is invisible. And this is the key. It was not... It was not the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. Those were representations. He was seeing God by faith. He knew behind all of those manifestations was the infinite God of the universe. And you wonder now, what's going on in the soul of Moses? The man who would eventually, not at this point, but eventually would write the book of Genesis, would write, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. I mean, the, the, that faith is forming in Moses to be able to write those words. Isn't that incredible? And so he, he saw by faith the invisible God. Now, just a few verses ago, we were talking about Christ. He considered the treasures of Christ of greater worth than all the treasures of Egypt. So it could be that the him that he's seeing as invisible is Christ as well. That Christ really is personified in the, um, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. He is the one who came down from heaven to protect his people and deliver them. So it's awesome. Hmm. By the wow. way, for us, it's an application. Um, that's, we all need to endure as seeing him who is invisible. That's what the life of faith is all about. We walk by faith, not by sight. Yeah, which is why you say that faith is the eyesight of the soul because it lets you see things that you cannot see with your eyes. Joel, is, it, is there a better eyesight of the soul verse than this one? No, as this is the one. him who is invisible. Well, okay, <laughs> well, I'll, maybe verse uh, chapter 12, he says, uh, looking to Jesus, the founder of our, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus. So that one, that one could compete. That. You're right, you're yeah. right. But the thing they that's so cool were. here is, the thing that's so cool here is the actual statement of invisible. Yeah. Seeing the invisible. That's faith. Yeah. The author mentions the Passover in verse 28. He says, By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. How does Moses' faith enable him to lead the people in this inaugural Passover celebration? Well, I mean, let's, let's keep it simple. By faith we obey. 
by faith we obey. And so what was it that, uh, that enabled the people to survive? It was doing what God told them to do with the Passover. There's a lot of symbolism there. I don't think they fully understood. We see it all clearly now. We know Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. The lamb that is slain, his blood is applied, and the angel of death sees the blood, passes over, and the people don't die. It's just a clearly substitutionary atonement. Moses, I don't know how much of all that he understood, maybe a lot, but he, he did the actions of the Passover by faith. He obeyed. He did the sprinkling of the blood. He did all of that so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch them. He would not, the people would not die. So here's the thing fundamentally, the blood must be applied to our souls by faith. It is by faith in Jesus that the destroyer doesn't touch us, despite the fact that we deserve to be condemned. So this is that clear link between um, faith and our deliverance from death. Yeah, I love what you said there. And as you said, I just in my mind went back through chapter 11, that by faith he obeyed. I think you just see that over and over again with Abraham. It said by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out. And all these heroes of the faith is that you said it's an action thing. Yeah. So by faith they did, by faith they obeyed. And we see that so often in the life of Moses, it's action after action after action in obedience to God's call. Yeah, and the word of God precedes everything. He told them very plainly in Exodus 12, I think it is, what to do. Yeah. He told them the lessons for the, uh, of the Passover, exactly how long to keep the, the lamb, what to do, how to, how to kill it, uh, how to apply the blood with hyssop, plant, uh, a hyssop branch on the, on the doorpost and the lintel. He told them everything to do. So here's the thing. God's not up there saying, saying, just do whatever you want. Do something that will please me. Just think good thoughts of me and do something good. No, no, no. He says, this is what you are to do. Now obey me. And by faith, they obey. Yeah. Now, the final verse here in the, that finishes the life of Moses for this author is the Red Sea crossing. He says, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. So now he pits faith uh, versus disobedience, the Israelites yeah. versus the Egyptians. Sure. Uh, what, what does this verse show us? Well, I mean, I want to go back to the penultimate verse right before Hebrews 11. I'll just read it again. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls, survive. And so this is, you know, clear contrast. You don't want to be like the unbelieving Egyptians, do you? So that's, he's warning these Hebrew professors of faith in Christ that look what happened to those that did not believe. They were destroyed. And so here, the Red Sea Crossing, now I'll tell you, the Red Sea Crossing is just, I think, by far the most spectacular miracle, perhaps in the Bible, um, not the most significant, but the most spectacular. By that I mean you stand and if you were there, you'd be in awe of what you were seeing. Is there any other miracle other than obviously creation itself? Now that would put you in awe, but I can't think of another miracle that is just as spectacular. Maybe maybe Elijah going up in a chariot of fire. That's pretty spectacular. I'm just thinking about the the most amount of energy used, like, oh. uh, you know, in physics, the energy Staggering. used to back the, the water. Think about the, you know? the, you know, the Hoover Dam and, you know, the, the amount of concrete that goes into just holding back. And this was the sea. This is, this is not some lake. So we don't know how deep it was. And I, I think it's just so humorous how liberal um, commentators say it was the sea of reeds. It was like a marshy ground they went across. Like, well, it's amazing that God drowned a whole army in a, in a, in a little swamp like that, some puddles. All the Egyptians were face down in a puddle. That's quite remarkable. Anyway, now this was the the Red Sea. 
and they're crossing as on dry ground. And how it happened, it's just, it boggles the mind. There was an east wind that blew all night and all that. But honestly, unless it was a hurricane, um, it wouldn't have made much much of a, it was more symbolic, just the pre, like, like Pentecost, the presence of the Spirit of God is all. What moved it was just the force of God. But here's the interesting thing. I had not, for most of my Christian life, I mean, the overwhelming majority of the years that I thought about the Red Sea Crossing, I thought of it in terms of broad daylight. It was at night. It was pitch black. So you think about it, because um, it was at dawn the next day, the Lord looked down from on top of the pillar of fire and confused them and then had the sea go back. So they, they're crossing at night. And so for me, this is a very clear picture of resurrection from the dead. You know, you go down, and you come up. You go down into death, and you come up, and it's dawn, and it's light, and it's alive. And so you're wondering, well, how did they see? Pillar of fire. So they're following Christ through the way. It's like, it's like Christian and hopeful crossing the river of death in, in Pilgrim's Progress, the only more dramatic. You got several million people so it must have been quite an avenue, a wide avenue to get the people through. But they're crossing all night. And you're going through and it's dark and scary. But it's dry ground. And so that's, that's encouraging because that's a miracle. And you're just seeing the water walling up on the left and the right. And the angel of the Lord leading ahead and the light coming bright enough on the left and the right wall of water. And you're crossing. And so it took faith to go down and to trust that you would not be destroyed. And so the people, all of them, to some degree, showed that faith, but Moses especially led them. And, and then, second half of the verse, when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. So the same water that was moved out of the way by the sovereign hand of God, the power of God, then turned on them and destroyed them. They were counting on God to hold the water back. Why would he do that? They were his enemies. And so it reminds me of sinners in the hands of an angry God. The basic premise of that sermon was the only thing that keeps the reprobate, the wicked, out of hell for even one instant is the mere sovereign pleasure of God. And God is that God is enraged at them. That's what the thesis of the sermon is. So imagine here are the Egyptians, the enemies of the people of God, who are pursuing for one purpose, and that is to kill God's people. It's like, no, no. And God wages war against them, and they all die. I love what God says also to Moses ahead of time. These enemies that you see here with your eyes, you'll never see them again they're about to die it's pretty awesome yeah yeah incredible picture of salvation i mean i don't when i say picture i don't mean that didn't actually happen it happened but it's still a picture of salvation and judgment god brings his people over crossed out of of darkness rider he is thrown into the sea cast his enemies into the sea yeah awesome isn't that awesome and and how much and they sing the song on the other side of god's salvation says in revelation they sang the song of moses and of the lamb so the song of Moses, I think, would be the song they sang on the other side of the Red Sea and of the Lamb, meaning that's how it was done. It was by Jesus. We made it through the Red Sea on the other side, and we are alive and our enemies are all dead. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. We could go on for a while. We could. We could. <laughs> and it's it's kind of sad that I, we yeah. only get um, a few verses for each of these heroes of the faith because Moses, he uh, is a huge place in the Old Testament. Yeah. Well, we get a short summary of, we don't even get the name Joshua, but we get a short summary of part of his ministry. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down mm-hmm. after he had been, they had been encircled for seven days. Yeah. What do you think the author is doing here by bringing in Joshua and the fall of Jericho? Again, keeping in mind the context of these Hebrew Christians, trying to keep them from going back to Judaism. Um, 
Why does he bring in Joshua? Well, I think what's going on here, both the Red Sea crossing and now the, the walls, you have immense, incomprehensible power. I mean, you think about the walls of Jericho. They were high walls. Uh, the, the 10 spies, remember, said they have walls up to the sky. So they are very, very high walls. I don't, I don't know, 50, 60 feet high, like a six, seven-story building. And they just came on down like they were made of, of sawdust. So immense power. By faith, the walls fell. It's like, to, to one degree, you're going to say, not really. It was by the sovereign power of God that the, that the walls fell. Just as by the sovereign power of God, the Red Sea was pushed back and the ground was dry. But faith unleashes that power, I guess. The, the connection here is by faith, the people of God are in a position to receive the powerful, mighty hand of God. To be there when it happens. Right? Yeah, yeah, we get to be there. Yeah. And, and they did their part. But similar to Gideon, you know, and all that, it's like, just understand, you didn't do much. I mean, his 300 soldiers just lap water like a dog. And they're standing there holding torches and... and uh, yeah, they didn't even get weapons. It's yeah, the torches and the weapons jar. and yeah. trumpets. And, and, and they're just standing there. They didn't do anything. But by faith, they stood there. Um, so the same thing here. God told Joshua what to do. And they went around Jericho once for six days, six consecutive days. And on the seventh day, they went around seven times. And then they gave a great shout and the walls fell down. And so we all know it was the power of God that did it. But he did it in clear connection with the obedience of the people. They did what he told them to do. And then the walls fell down. Yeah. Now this next verse, which is connected to Jericho, and I think it's a huge verse and perhaps shocks many people when they read it. He says, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And before I ask you um, what that means, I want to ask you to, for some listeners who are not familiar with Rahab and, and her story, can you give us a brief account of Rahab in the book of Joshua? And then we'll talk about why she makes it into the hall of faith. Right. Well, jo um, Joshua sent out some spies, just as Moses had done 40 years earlier. And, they, and these spies, two spies, um, were brought in um, by Rahab. Rahab was a, a, a harlot, a prostitute um, in the city of Jericho. She was a Canaanite woman. And she had a, a house, it seems, some, in some way, in the wall, the actual wall of Jericho. And so she brought the men in and um, they had a conversation. And the uh, spies found out that everyone in the city of Jericho is afraid of the Jews because, first of all, they're massive, two, two million people. There's a lot of people, two or three million. We don't know how many, but just a lot of 600,000 men plus women and children. So just a lot of people. Um, but they also had heard of the, the very thing we just discussed, Red Sea Crossing, and how Pharaoh's army was destroyed. So the people were afraid. And um, the whole city was locked up. And, and here are the, are the two spies. And, and Rahab basically says, I want to survive, me and my family. I don't want to die. And so effectively, she knew she deserved to die. And so she, by faith, asked to live. So that's a fundamental conversion moment, really. It's like, I don't want to die and go to hell. I don't have any, any ground or standing here. And the text says she didn't die along with those who were disobedient. You really could enhance it a bit and say she didn't die along with everyone else that was also disobedient. She was disobedient too. She was a sinner. She had violated God's laws. Now, what laws did, did the disobedient who perished at Jericho, what did they violate? Well, they were not Jews. They didn't have any. And besides which, the law of Moses hadn't even been written yet. 
So they violated the law of God, the moral law of God written in their consciences. They violated God's morality written inside them. They were wicked people. And so they worshiped false gods. They did it in wicked ways. And Rahab participated. She was no different. But then the chance came and she said, I believe your God is the true God. And so by faith in that true God, she didn't perish. Now, James, James chapter 2, gives a great deal of information about faith and works and says, faith without works is dead. And so Rahab was saved by the works that she did in conjunction with her faith. The author of Hebrews would agree. It was by faith she did not perish with those who were disobedient because of how she treated the spies. And so the spies, on behalf of the Jewish nation, made a covenant with her to save her. How is Rahab an incredible encouragement for someone who thinks that because of their level of sin, they cannot, they will not be accepted by God and the people of God? Right. There is no level of sin that God's grace cannot cover. There's, there's no level of sin. Uh, the grace of God in Christ is infinite. It's an infinite ocean. I love that image of an ocean of grace. And we, uh, no matter how filthy and defiled we are, we can swim in that ocean and be completely cleansed. And so Rahab was a wicked woman. She was a Canaanite prostitute. Um, undoubtedly, some of, some of the things she did were in worship of the false gods and goddesses. But when the time came, she feared. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. She feared rightly and she believed rightly. And so the Lord forgave her of all of her sins. Now I'll tell you, she, Rahab, is one of my, one of my listings of surprising conversions in the Bible. She's, she's like my hall of faith of, or hall of fame of, of, of the most surprising conversions. The people that I think are going to be in heaven, you're like, wow, how did they get there? So you got Rahab who's a Canaanite woman, on what basis did she believe in the God of the Jews? But she did. Then you got Nebuchadnezzar, who was the most powerful man on earth, uh, a wicked man, a tyrant, and God moved in his heart in an amazing way. Then you got um, the thief on the cross, who is amazing in that time was very short for him, and there wasn't much evidence that Jesus was coming in a kingdom. But he believed in Jesus uh, at the last possible moment. And then, of course, Saul of Tarsus who hated Christians, and all four of them are very surprising conversions. So take the four together and say, look, if God can convert Rahab, Nebuchadnezzar, the thief on the cross, and Saul of Tarsus, he can convert anyone anytime. Amen. I love it. Yeah, I never thought about Rahab and the Pilgrim's Progress, but because you had mentioned uh, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress earlier today, I was thinking about that as we're talking about that. And, and she got out of the city of destruction just in time. Just in time. Yeah, and, and you wonder with all the walls falling down, but her house was in the wall. So it's like that one chunk of wall survived. And, uh, you know, God was faithful and the Joshua and the Jews were faithful to deliver her. And it's marvelous. There's more about Rahab and that she ends up in Jesus' genealogy, yeah. um, which is quite remarkable. Um, but she's one of the four women mentioned in the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, all four women are noteworthy and Rahab's one of them. Yeah. So you could say, uh, as the author said earlier, God is not ashamed, or Jesus is not ashamed yeah. to call her uh, one of his own. No. So what are they? you got, you got Rahab, you got um, uh, Ruth the Moabitess, and you got Bathsheba mentioned. And That's then, a surprising one as well. Yes, yeah. very surprising. Then you got Mary. And so four women that are mentioned in the genealogy, and, and Rahab is one of them. Hmm. You got any final comments on this section and maybe a couple application points? Yeah, I think worldwide. 
you know, um, let's just not just think about us here in our comfortable setting in America, but worldwide. Let's not let Satan either either allure us and entice us or threaten us and terrify us away from faith in Christ. The world does both. And so like it did even with Jesus, what, what Satan did, offer him all the world and then turn and, and threaten him with death uh, throughout his life and ministry. And so that's Satan. And so he wants to do anything he can to get us away from trusting in Christ. Secondly, I just love the things we've emphasized here, the idea of eyesight of the soul, seeing him who's invisible. I, I really believe we would sin less and less and less if we continually could see the invisible Christ watching us all, all the time. It would just be such a powerful thing. It's just a powerful motivator for holiness. Amen. Well, that was episode 33 in the book of Hebrews. Please join us next time for episode 34, where we discuss heroes of the faith through victory and suffering from chapter 11, verses 32 through 40. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and God bless you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.